Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Agnes Varda's 2000 film The Gleaners and I. This is the first Varda film that I'm covering since her death on March 29th of 2019. I talk about why her films have been so important to me, why they were really formative when I was first discovering art house cinema. I then talk in depth about The Gleaners and I, which is one of my favorite films by her. I touch on the way that Varda includes herself in the film, how she looks at people who live on the margins of society, and much more. And I also provide a discussion of why I think her follow-up documentary, The Gleaners and I, Two Years Later, is a powerful look at the way a film can affect our lives. So I'm talking about The Gleaners and I, but I also include a bit of a of an exploration of The Gleaners and I, Two Years Later, an hour-long supplemental documentary that she did. And I think they're perfect companions and go well together, and I loved both of them. I hope that you listen to the full episode, and I hope that you really enjoy it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis, and you can access rewards and extras like bonus episodes and merchandise. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. First, I'd like to welcome two new patrons, Lane and Haroon. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. And I'd also love to give a shout out to my longtime patrons, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much. I wish I could give all of you a big hug. I appreciate your support so much. If financial support is not an option for you, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you leave me a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode of the podcast. Please give me five stars. You can also tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can engage with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Her Head in Films, and you can find links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So I will not go on anymore. Let's get started and dive into The Gleaners and I. This is the first episode about a Varda film that I'm doing since her passing, and she died on March 29th, 2019. I've already done a few episodes about her films. I did one on Vagabond, which is a film of hers from 1985, and then I also have an episode about Cleo from 5 to 7, a film she made in 1962. So Varda is someone very dear to me. 
I have seen most of her films, I want to say. There's some of the shorter ones that I'm still getting around to, but I've seen a great deal of her filmography. And I still remember the day that she passed away. And I was going through Instagram and I was seeing pictures of her and that wasn't unusual because I follow cinephile accounts and we all love Varda, those of us who are cinephiles, I think. I think she's quite beloved among so many of us. So at first I wasn't really reading the descriptions or anything like that, but then I did and I realized what had happened and it was devastating. I know she was 90 years old, but she always came off much younger than that and she had an energy and a vitality about her that made me think that she would go on forever, that there was no way that we could ever lose her, but we did and we all mourned together. That's something that I actually find comforting about social media. These days, I usually rail against it. (laughs) I've tried to cut back the amount of time that I spend on social media, but I think that something really beautiful that can happen on those spaces like Twitter and Instagram is that when we lose a beloved figure like Agnes Varda, we can sort of collectively mourn her because not all of us live in places or have friends who are really interested in art house cinema. I certainly don't. I live in the rural South. There's not really a lot of film culture where I live. So in everyday life, nobody's going to know who Agnes Varda is or what she meant to me. But I had people online that I reached out to, that I messaged with, and we both shared our grief over it. We never knew her, never spoke to her, obviously. But we saw her films, and her films meant something to us. She had a long and distinguished career. She's a seminal figure in the French New Wave, as many of you already know. She's an important figure in in the history of cinema. But more than that, she was a crucial figure for me in my own discovery of art house cinema, which I date back to around 2011, when I got seriously interested in European art house cinema. Varda was one of the first people that I watched. I saw Cleo from 5 to 7. Later on, I saw Vagabond. I saw The Beaches of Agnes. And over the years, I've just watched more of her work and enjoyed it immensely. And when I saw Cleo from 5 to 7, first of all, here was a woman who was part of the new wave. I had watched Truffaut. I'd watched Godard. I'd watched Romare, Chabrol, all of that. I, I enjoy the French new wave. Though I find that as time has passed, I've become a bit more interested in the French cinema that came before the new wave. So your your French poetic realism of someone like Marcel Carnet or Jean Vigo. I, I love those directors as well. So Varda was an important figure for me and seeing Cleo from five to seven, seeing the way she was exploring a woman's life, a woman's subjectivity, her experience with possible illness, the way that time passes. I mean, those of you who have not seen the film, Cleo is like this pop star and she gets um, a diagnosis that she might have cancer and the film follows her for about an hour and a half in her life. Her thinking about what might come and what might happen and it's about her subjective experience of time and I just loved it. I, I loved the way it looked I loved the themes that it explored. And then Vagabond from 1985 was another big revelation for me. That's probably my favorite Agnes Varda film. Sandrine Bonaire gives 
a powerful performance as a young woman named Mona, who is really a drifter. She lives on the margins of society, much like the people in The Gleaners and I, which I'll talk about some of those connections that I saw with Vagabond later on. And I had such sympathy for Mona. She, She's really on her own. She's a woman just drifting. She's homeless. She stays here and there, but she doesn't really have roots anywhere. And you're not totally sure why, why she's living this way. But she does seem to have chosen it, and I think it gives her a sort of freedom. But from the beginning of the film, we know that she's died. That she's died of exposure outside in the cold. And the film traces her life up to that point through the different people that met her. So I think from the beginning with Varda, I saw a director that focused on women and their lives, their point of view, and that also was concerned with humanity and with the struggles of people. And you see that very well in Vagabond. For me, I just always loved how her cinema really centered the marginalized, and she found possibilities in that, in that way of living. And you see that a lot in The Gleaners and I, and as well in Vagabond. But I also think that her films spring from an intellectual curiosity, a desire to know about the world around her and other people. That is so big in her work, especially her documentaries. She has quite a few documentaries that she made. She's also very alive to the moment, and she just seemed to take a lot of joy in what she did and find joy in the world and in her relationships with other people. That always comes through in her work. But she was also a politically engaged filmmaker, if you think about her documentary about the Black Panthers or Cuba or her participation in Far From Vietnam, which was against the Vietnam War. So I certainly don't want to erase her more political side or the way she looked at feminism in films like Women Reply or One Sings, The Other Doesn't. This is a woman who is deeply engaged with the issues of her time and of the decades that she lived through. And you see that political engagement in The Gleaners and I, in looking at people who are on the margins of society, who are really against the wastefulness that they see. And I'll talk more in depth about that. So she's deeply humane, deeply emotional in her work at times, very personal. Think of her films about Jacques Demy, you know, Jaco Denon, The World of Jacques Demy, The Beaches of Agnes, very personal moments in all of those films. And yet I think she's also profoundly intellectual and political. And I just wanted to share a few quotes that Varda herself said in some interviews. She said in a interview with Clio Journal, quote, It seems that my films stay in people's memories or in people's minds as meaning something. For me, that's the best thing, to exist in other people's minds, to know there's an audience that has been following my work, unquote. And I love that. I think her work does stay in your mind, that Cleo and Vagabond and One Sings the Other Dozen or La Bonheur, that all of them stay with you right? I think her films definitely leave an impression. And from her last interview with The Guardian before she passed away, quote, I would like to be remembered as a filmmaker who enjoyed life, including pain. This is such a terrible world, but I keep the idea that every day should be interesting. What happens in my days, working, meeting people, listening, convinces me that it's worth being alive, unquote. And I think you see that joy for life and that love of people in one of her last films, Faces Places, with J.R., 
where she went across the French countryside and different places and put portraits of people up on walls. And so her engagement with people is always there and always front and center in her work. And she did take joy in life and she was a vibrant person and just so brilliant the way her mind works. And I think you see it really well in The Gleaners and I, the way she finds connections between things, the way she assembles the material that she films and the way that she brings in history and other forms of art. This is a woman who was profoundly alive and creative and intellectual. That Those are the artists that I love the most. The, the people who have just prodigious intellects and who bring in all kinds of things into their work, things about history and literature. And I get the sense with Varda that she was curious about everything. I mean, she was a photographer before she became a director. She made all these films. But then in the last uh, few decades of her life, from 2000 on, she also did exhibitions. She did art installations. She she did things like that. So this is a woman who's in cinema, but she's also in photography and visual art, and she's in exhibition art in museums. So she's engaging with so many different art forms. And she also loved literature. I think that comes through a great deal in her work. So she she can't be categorized, I don't think. I don't think she can be confined to one box she spilled out of those boundaries and I think she shows us that cinema can be so many different things and nothing shows that more than the gleaners and I so I want to give you a little bit of background on the film I don't want to go too deeply into it but in a 2001 interview with the Guardian Varda talked about what inspired this film I'm always interested in what sparks a film she said quote During the wheat harvest in the summer of 1999, I saw a farmer on TV with his combine harvester. He was explaining that if the machine was badly adjusted and left one grain on each stalk, he would end up losing a staggering amount of wheat and an equally staggering amount of money. This grain on a stalk struck me. It reminded me of gleaning in the old days and of the paintings of women gleaning. I wanted to seek these people out." She also said, quote, I loved the idea that in the rubbish you find hearts. And in the same way, I love the idea of finding that these apparently ordinary people are extraordinary, unquote. So she really starts from an idea of painting, that she gets inspired by these images that she's seen of women gleaning. And all that gleaning is, is that after the fields have been harvested, it's an ancient thing, after fields have been harvested, people would go through and they would pick up whatever was left on the ground. And usually it was done by women. And there's all kinds of different paintings, like by Breton and Millet. You see those in the film. So she's inspired by visual art, inspired by painting, and then starts to make this documentary. And she went all across France to do this film. All kinds of sections, not just Paris and in the cities, but also in the rural parts in Provence in the north of France. There's a book called The Cinema of Agnes Varda. It's by Delphine Benazet. And she talks about how the film is, quote, a truly peripatetic road movie if one looks at the regions it covers, unquote. And 
that's interesting because I thought the same when I was watching it that it feels like a road movie. We see Agnes on the road driving and uh, I don't know if she's driving. She's like in the passenger seat and she even films uh, the, the roads and the cars going by and things like that. So she didn't limit herself to just one area. She went all around talking to these different people who glean. Gleaning, it's not done as much now, obviously. Instead of people doing the harvest, it's machines. And machines have become much more adept at it and much better at it. So there's not often that much left for people to go into the fields and glean. But there are people that still do it in fields. But Varda also shows people on an island and going to a beach and gleaning when the tide is low or after there's storms. And they can pick up, I guess, oysters or mussels or just things that are in the sand. She shows people in orchards. She shows people uh, who grab things off sidewalks in Paris or who go after the markets are done in Paris as well. And so there's all these crates of food and fruit. People who go to dumpsters and trash cans and get food out. So her idea of gleaning is expansive. And it's not just physical. It's also, she talks about how it can be mental. How you glean information. How she takes her camera and gleans images. So gleaning in this documentary is multifaceted and it comes in many forms. Delphine Benazay in her book says that Varda spent eight months on the film. She was on and off the road and she was trying to find people who would participate in the film and she would just randomly talk to people and sometimes talking to one person would lead her to another person and so it was really this process of discovery the way that she came across the different people who are in the film. So I'm going to go through and just talk about different themes that I find really compelling about this film. And the first one for me that I think is central is Varda's presence in the film. Because from what I've read, this is really the first film where she physically becomes present in the film and she becomes part of the narrative. And some people might like that and some people may not. When she reconnects from with one of the people, I'm... And I want to be clear, I'm not just going to talk about The Gleaners and I. I'm also going to talk about a follow-up documentary that Varda did two years later in 2002, where she both revisited the people in the film, some of the people, and also engaged with fans of the film itself and interviewed them. It's this fascinating little documentary. It's only an hour long, but I really want to talk about it. And I had seen both of these films before. That's how I knew that I wanted to do this episode. But I had forgotten how rich that second documentary is. It's called The Gleaners and I Two Years Later. And that one just really moved me just as much as the main film The Gleaners and I did. And so I'll probably focus a little bit more on it than I had actually anticipated that I would. But I was just so moved by both of these films. So Varda's presence in the film is really central. As I said, it's the first time that she's really physically in a film. I, I think in other films before this one, she had narrated, and she, but she had filmed other people. She becomes one of the main subjects in The Gleaners and I. And the title from the beginning tells you this. She could have called it The Gleaners, right? And not had herself in it. But The Gleaners and I... That and I is crucial. She is injecting herself and uh, including herself in the film. And also the digital camera 
is really important with this film. I, I guess I don't know a lot about cameras and the technical aspect of filmmaking. I'm self-taught when it comes to film and cinema and all that, so I don't know a lot about that technical aspect, but it sounds like around 2000 that the digital handheld cameras I guess maybe became more affordable or more accessible. So she realizes that she doesn't need a huge crew to do the film, that it can be her and maybe a few other people. And she talked about in an interview how she actually preferred that because of the um, the delicacy of what she was doing, that she was talking to people on camera who, you know, are dealing with poverty, are dealing with some of them living in trailers or living very difficult lives, and she wanted them to be comfortable opening up to her, and that wasn't going to happen if there's like 20 people around. So the digital camera that she holds throughout the film, it becomes like um, a vehicle to intimacy between her and the subjects, but then it also becomes a way for her to become a subject in the film, because she can hold the camera in one hand and then film her other hand. She talks about that several times. It, it just makes it easier for her to, to be in the film. So it's actually a good example of a, a certain kind of technology facilitating this documentary. She could film her body easier, and it gave her a kind of freedom that she didn't have before. And there's this great scene where she's imitating one of the paintings, and I'll go deeper into the paintings and the art that she talks about in a little while. I think it's the Breton painting of um, a woman gleaning. In the painting, the woman is standing very tall and upright, and she has this huge uh, sheath of wheat on her shoulder, and Varda impersonates that. She holds a big sheath of wheat on her shoulder, and then she uh, puts it down, and picks up her digital camera and talks about how this is how she will glean. She will glean with her camera. This will be how she gleans images and artifacts and stories, right? That's really what this film is. is it's also a collection of stories of the people who glean in different ways, whether it's in the fields, the orchards, the beaches, or the markets. A huge way that she inserts herself in the film is by filming her body. She films her hands. She says in an IndieWire interview, quote, I like very much the idea of the hands. The hands are the tool of the gleaners, you know. Hands are the tool of the painter, the artist, unquote. She's very interested in her hands. She shows herself combing her hair and then does a close-up of her hands. And a big part of the film is the fact that she's aging. And that's partially why she is putting herself into the film is because she's trying to come to terms with her aging body and the camera can do a close-up of her skin and its wrinkles and the liver spots, the way that her hair is graying. The camera is like this eye that can see all of that and also preserve it and show a woman aging showing a woman trying to come to terms with that. And the scenes where she filmed herself in close-up like that reminded me of a scene from The Beaches of Agnes, where she shows footage that she took of her late husband, who's also, who was also a director, Jacques Demy. And she took that footage before his death, really while he was dying, I guess you could say. And she does these close-ups of his skin and his hair and his face, she talks about how she had to do it 
that she had to preserve him in some way that she had to film in her words his very matter his matter his skin and his flesh and his hair and it made me think about how watching this film after Varda's death this is what we have left of her that when we look at her hands and her hair and her skin this is what she has left behind for us as viewers it was a very different experience to watch the film knowing that she was alive and to watch it now knowing that she's gone is a different experience it's seeing these images taken and of someone who's who's died who is now preserved in some way through film that we have her face and her hands we have this um, illusion of her physical uh, being even though she's not here with us anymore I would imagine that those images for her children are somewhat comforting to have that to have her hands and her skin and her hair in a film that they can look at and relive in some way but we have it too we're not her children but she was beloved and those of us who love her will miss her forever I'll miss her forever I'm so grateful for the films that she created though and I'm grateful that we have these images of her and and here she is she's with us in some way even though she's gone and this film is important in the way that I think it sort of creates this mythology of Varda that will become even stronger in the final years of her life because Varda really toiled for a long time I mean she made many films but she did not necessarily get the appreciation or the attention that Truffaut and Godard and all of those other French New Wave filmmakers received or Jacques Demy right Chris Marker although Jacques Demy and Chris Marker are not really technically part of the New Wave I don't think but I feel like she toiled a lot I don't think she's received the appreciation she deserved and it's only in the last few years that she got like an honorary Oscar and different things like that and where she probably felt like she was finally recognized for this extraordinary body of work but uh, a big thing that happens with this film this is a very successful film for her when it came out there was um, a huge reaction to it she received lots of letters and things like that and the heart-shaped potato became a really big thing and it's still associated with her and she pokes fun at herself Uh, in the years since this film she would poke fun at herself like I think a few years ago she wore like a potato costume right the heart-shaped potato becomes this emblem of Varda and a few times in the film she shows her hands uh, holding the potatoes and that's another way that she inserts herself into the film that potato has just become synonymous with her it's sort of like a symbol of of everything that's beautiful about her I think the heart the love the warmth but then the potato that's in the ground that is um, grounded and earthy and authentic the the way that she was and I love the scene of her eating the figs like I don't think anyone talks about this scene but it's just her eating figs she's in this orchard and and she picks some off of the tree she showed other people doing that now she's the picker she's the gleaner and she's eating these figs and she loves them she's like reveling in eating them and I really loved that scene it's but it's another scene of just her you know she's not interviewing anybody it's not necessarily necessary to the film that she 
be shown eating figs, right? But it's just, the film is is about Varda as much as it's about the other people, I think. Although the other people take precedence and have much more time in the film. But I think she's interested in showing the process of creating the film and the things that she feels and sees and experiences as well. I love those tangents. I think some people don't. You know, maybe it's not for everybody, but I I love those tangents and it reminds us that there's a human being behind the camera. There's a person holding the camera and they have a life story and they have a perspective and they're not neutral or objective, right? She wants to eat some figs. She wants to film her hands. She's coming to terms with aging. There's a lot that she's showing us in this film and it is very personal in that way. And there's this really profound scene where she talks about aging. She's She's been on a trip to Japan. She's brought back souvenirs and things that she bought there, including these Rembrandt pictures. They look like sort of like postcards. And she shows uh, Saskia, who was Rembrandt's wife. And she does this, clo- it's a close-up. The painting is of Rembrandt's wife. And then she cuts to a close-up of her hands and she says, quote, This is my project, to film with one hand my other hand, to enter into the horror of it. I find it extraordinary. I feel as if I am an animal. Worse, I am an animal I don't know. Like, what do you even say? I think aging, I think the fear of age, I don't know if she was afraid, but she was maybe fascinated with it, but also horrified by it, that here are my hands and they don't look like they once did. The The horror of that, that, that the body does decay, that it does deteriorate, and the body does end one day, just like it ended for Varda, like it ends for all of us. For me, that's something really difficult to deal with. It's hard to see, for instance, my mom aging, to see pictures of her from a few years ago, and then to compare it to how she looks now, and the gray hairs that she's getting, or the way that her hands look, and the wrinkles in her hands, and the way her skin is, and to know that she is finite and temporary, and that so am I. I don't think I deal with that well at all. And so I I admire Varda for acknowledging that. And finally, another way that she includes herself in the film is near the end when she finds that clock without hands. And she says that that's her kind of thing because you don't see time passing. I mean, this is where she comes full circle. I mean, the whole film, she's been talking about her aging body. And the only reason we age is because of time. (laughs) That's the only reason, you know, because years go by and we get older her finding that clock without arms it's it's a way to deny time or to not have to think about time and uh, you don't have to see it passing but of course you see time passing in your own body by the way that your body changes that's how you know that time is passing right she knows that uh, you know by looking at her hands or whatever that time is passing and it's taking an effect on her body and she shows herself uh her head underneath the clock. And so it's just this fascinating scene, I thought. But I just loved her running commentary throughout the film and the way that she the way that she made herself and her presence explicit in the film and owned it 
and said, I have every right to be in this film. From some things I read, I think she had some worries about it and some doubts that maybe she thought of editing that out. And she thought it might be a better film without her in it. But obviously in the end, she decided to keep that in. And I think that's a real strength of the film, that it's a portrait of these gleaners but it's also a portrait of her, a woman, a director who does her own kind of cleaning with her camera and who's also coming to terms with the aging of her body. And how often do we see older women on camera in films, whether they're independent, you know, art house films? I mean, I'm not just talking about Hollywood. Obviously, we never see or hardly see older women on camera in Hollywood films. But even with the art house, even with the avant-garde, in the independent films, we don't necessarily see women of Varda's age because she would have been around 70 years old or close to 70 years old at the time. And it's very rare to see that and to see an honest exploration of aging, the impact that that has on a woman. And so I think what she did was quite radical and brave because I'm sure there were people who didn't like it. And in in The Gleaners and I, two years later, Alan, the one who's going through the stuff after the markets at the very end, and he teaches immigrants to read and write, when she meets up with him again, he says that that's the part of the film he didn't like. He didn't like when she was filming her hair and her liver spots, and he didn't like her presence in the film. He felt like it didn't make sense or it took away from the film. Whereas somebody like me, or I think many other people who see the film and are moved by it, we love her presence. We adore it. It it would not be the same film without her in it, without her personal perspective and what she brings to the film. And I want to circle back to the political dimension of the film, because even though she inserts herself and she has a personal perspective that she's bringing to it of of this woman who's aging, this woman who's gleaning. So it has that personal element to it. I think it's also a deeply political film in the way that it is looking at people who live on the margins. And also it's looking, it's critiquing the wastefulness that is in society. It's looking at wastefulness, inequality, like the ethics of gleaning and gleaning as almost a form of resistance. And so I think that this film came out in 2000, obviously. I think that it resonates so much with today as we're grappling with climate change and how our way of life has caused it, how our overconsumption and our consumerism and our materialism has really led to climate change. Everything nowadays is disposable. We live in such a disposable world. We throw everything away and then buy something new. It's all about the new thing. And I think one of the worst uh, things is technology in that way. As soon as you have one phone, there's a new version of that phone coming out. And so what do you do? You get rid of the old version so that you can get the new version. The iPhone is a good example. Every few years, there's a different iPhone. There's a new iPhone. I don't know if they maybe have programs to recycle those phones. I don't know. I remember watching a 60-minute segment years ago that said that a lot of our electronics end up in China where people pick them apart and it can be very dangerous because of the minerals that are in the the cell phones and the gadgets and stuff 
I don't know if that still happens. I did hear that China refused, uh, started to refuse taking our, our recycling. And so now a lot of recycling places are closing down because we would send the recycling to China and let them deal with it. And now they're not taking it anymore. So now people can't recycle. I do think here in the U.S. we're very wasteful. And obviously in France they're wasteful too. That's what Varda was critiquing, I think, and she was trying to bring people's attention to it. And I watched this fascinating documentary recently. It's called Pressing On, the letterpress documentary or the letterpress film. And it's about these letterpresses and about sort of the vanishing art of letterpress. Letterpress happens through often through these really huge machines. Uh, But a lot of these machines were made in like the 1800s. And the people who were in the documentary talking about these machines, a lot of them collect them. And they were talking about how they've lasted for centuries now. Like, you don't just uh, make a new letterpress machine. They've had the same machine for decades and centuries. And they're still going strong. They were made to like be this workhorse almost. I just thought that was fascinating because nowadays things are not made like that. Things are not made to last for centuries. Nowadays it's all about, well, you make this version, but then there's a new version coming out. You know, the PlayStation came out and then PlayStation 2. And then, you know, technology especially is so wasteful in that way. There's always these new versions of everything. Or think about clothing. You know, people throw out their old clothes and then they get a new wardrobe. It's like all about what's new. We just throw out everything. But it got me thinking that I feel like the working class and the poor, I think they're more connected to wanting leftovers you know, to buying used clothes and not being wasteful. I mean, I just think about my own background. Like I was working class growing up at times. I've been poor, food insecure, things like that. I loved going to thrift shops. <laughs> like I liked use, used things, used books. And I thought I think about how when I was younger, even now, you know, we did not waste food. You know, you ate the food that was on your plate. Like, I always eat the food that's on my plate. It, like, hurts me to throw food out or to waste food. I never wanted to be, like, a wasteful person. And a lot of the people that you see gleaning are, like, poor. And some of them are working class. They don't like that wastefulness. And they're trying to resist it in some way, I think. And as I was watching this film, I was wondering... I wonder if for me, watching a film is an act of gleaning. I take away certain images and feelings and then I add them to my own repository of memories. Like maybe the film doesn't really begin until it ends and then it creates this new life inside of your mind or inside of your life. So I think in a way as we're watching this film, we ourselves are gleaning. Like like you don't remember a film beginning to end every single thing that's in it you take certain images or you take certain scenes and you glean them and you think about them. And so I think we're participating in the act of gleaning while we're watching the film. I love that scene where Varda went to like what we would call here in the United States like a thrift shop or maybe a flea market or something like that. She goes there and she finds, I think she finds some paintings of gleaners And it's almost like this amazing coincidence. And um, like, I really love that. And it just reminded me of my own love of thrift shops and how um, 
I used to love going to the Goodwill. I used to buy a lot of books there, like used books and different curios. And I loved uh, collecting vintage photographs when I came across them and jewelry and just little bits and bobs like that. I I always loved thrift shops. And I have a memory, uh, sort of like a late memory of my dad before he passed away in 2006 when I was a teenager. I was 16 years old when it happened. And I talk about him a lot on the podcast. You can always uh, expect for me to talk about him (laughs) in every episode. One of the last memories that I have about him, and it's a really great memory, is us going to a thrift shop together. And I just still remember it so well. And I remember he found like these old newspapers and we were looking through them and just seeing what life was like a hundred years ago and the stories that were being written and what was the news of the day back then. And so when Varda was in that space, it, it just, it made me think of my own resistance to wastefulness, the way that I don't want to waste things. The way that I enjoy thrift places, I enjoy used books and used clothes. I used to buy some used clothes, I think so. My mom used to buy a lot of used clothes too. And I think in a way that our our memories become used things. We, we wear them out thinking of them over and over again. I just, I, w- I love how this film made me think. That's the thing about Varda and her documentaries especially, but this one in particular is that it makes you think, makes you think about what she's talking about, the art and the politics and society and all the different connections that she makes, all the little discoveries that she puts into the film. But then I also think it makes you reflect on your own life. And I wonder if that's why the film resonated so much and why it became so popular for Varda, is that I think there are a lot of people out there that like used things and that like thrift shops and like to glean in their own way. Maybe they don't go to the market the way Alan did, and maybe they're not like um, some of the the subjects in the film, but they hate the, the wastefulness that they see around them, and they just hate what's going on. I just think that connected with a lot of people. I really do. And I thought about how here in the South, I don't know how it is outside of this region, but a lot of people love yard sales. I remember that my mom and my grandma used to like on the weekends or like Saturday morning, they used to get up early and go to yard sales. It's a big thing down here. People really like to do that. And I I drove by a yard sale just the other day, actually. And they had tables out and they had clothes and they had all kinds of things out in their yard. You know, they looked like a working class family. You know, they didn't have some fancy house or anything. They're just trying to make a little bit of extra money going through the things that they have and giving, you know, and letting other people take them and use them. And there's a lot of people who are calling for that more, that we need to stop being so wasteful. You know, we need to recycle things. We need to just not have everything be replaced constantly and thrown away. At that at that thrift shop, Varda also found a sheaf of wheat along with those paintings of the gleaners. So I always love the discoveries that you can make in a thrift shop. You know, you can find old albums and CDs 
there's not as many thrift shops where I live right now. When I was growing up, we had like the Goodwill. We had like several Goodwills that me and my mom would go to because one was not enough. We would have to go to all the different ones. And I would always go to the book section and I always loved to see what was there. But I loved going in them because they just smelled old. Like I just love the smell of old things. I can't explain it. If any of you have been in a Goodwill or a thrift shop, you know what I'm talking about. And I love the smell of used books. I love, uh, you know, used bookstores. Like as soon as you go in, there's, there's just that scent, that fragrance. It's intoxicating. You feel like you're transported into the past. <laughs> I love it so much. It's almost like addictive. And I actually miss going to thrift places, but I, I don't have the money and I don't have the storage. I, I don't have the space <laughs> to store a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Another political aspect of the film is not just the critique of the wastefulness, but also looking at the way that gleaning has sort of been criminalized in certain areas of France. Like Varda goes to, I think, Burgundy, where I think they've criminalized gleaning in some of the vineyards. And then she also talks about this case of these young homeless people. They're like in their 20s and they get in trouble because they vandalized some trash cans. These trash cans were outside of, I think, a restaurant or, or a market or something like that. They used to go through the trash cans and get the food that the owner threw out. Well, the owner didn't like that. He didn't like the mess that it made. And so he put bleach all over the stuff in the trash cans. And that made these young people really pissed. And so they, um, they knocked the trash cans over and they spray painted stuff, I think. And there was like vandalization that happened and they actually had to go to court over it and they got in trouble over it. And so Varda talks to the young people, talks to the owner of the place, even talks to the judge that presided over it. She talks to everyone involved, but I think that her, I think her allegiance and her, um, sympathy is with the young people. I think she's definitely on their side. I don't think she likes the criminalization of gleaning at all. And when I was reading about gleaning, they said in ancient times or, you know, hundreds of years ago, it was something that poor people did. It was, it was a resource for poor people to get food and it was free. They didn't get in trouble for it. And it, it was not a criminal thing, but it was a source of free food that helped them. And so to see it criminalized that way is pretty disturbing because it's like, what is it hurting? What is it hurting for somebody to go to, through the trash to get food? What is it hurting for someone to go into the fields that have been harvested and to get the things that are left over? That stuff is going to go to waste anyways. So for it to be criminalized is just outrageous, right? And so Varda is looking really at all of the intricacies of that in a way. So I wanted to shift to the way that this film looks at people who live on the margins and the connections to her 1985 film Vagabond. And also I want to talk about some of the specific people in the film that I've already alluded to a bit, but I want to go a little bit deeper into their stories and why I think they're so powerful. I think part of what you connect to about The Gleaners and I is not just Varda. I think you deeply connect to her, but I think you also connect to the stories that she chooses to share in the film. Because I would imagine she interviewed a lot of different people. And I'm sure there are people's stories that ended up on the cutting room floor. You know, she chose these particular people for a reason. 
And in particular, I want to talk about Claude, Francois, and Alan. Because those, I think, are the most powerful stories in this film. But first, I want to talk about Vagabond. As I said earlier, it's about a girl named Mona, who's a drifter, who's homeless, and really lives on the margins of society. It stars Sandrine Bonaire in an early role for her. She really carries the film. I have a full episode about the film, so I don't want to rehash it or anything. If you haven't seen it, you should. If you have seen it, I hope that you love it as much as I do. And there's such a humanity in that film. There just really is. But the complexity of Vagabond is also a complexity that we see in The Gleaners and I, which is that Mona, yes, she's poor and she's a drifter and she's homeless and she doesn't have a lot of food and she sort of relies on other people just being nice to her. And she's this girl, really, who's on her own and she is profoundly vulnerable because of that. But she has also, in many ways, chosen that life. Now, there are people in the film who have not necessarily chosen to be gleaners. They are having a hard time. They're struggling with addiction. They're just, they just happen to be poor and they're struggling to make ends meet and struggling to feed themselves. But then there's someone sort of like Francois who chooses it more out of the ethics and out of his own uh, rage, his own outrage that there is so much waste. So some of these people are on the margins of society, yes, but some of them are choosing it just the way Mona was. Mona could have probably gone home at any time or she could have settled down with somebody. She chooses to be on the road. It it brings her a sense of freedom, even though it also ends up leading to her demise and it makes her vulnerable to certain kinds of suffering. But she wants that freedom. Mona, to me, came off like somebody who really could not fit into society the right way. She could not hold down a nine-to-five job and be normal and do everything that was expected of her. And that she needed that freedom of the road and that that's where she wanted to be. She wanted to live in a different way from other people. And I think that's the case with some of the people in The Gleaners and I is that they're choosing to separate themselves from society, sometimes because of their ethical concerns. Um, They don't like the way society is and they're really resisting a way of life that's very wasteful. And I love, love, love this quote from Varda. Uh, She did an interview with The Believer magazine. And just a reminder that everything that I'm alluding to all the interviews, all my sources, all my research, because I did a great deal for this episode. All of it's in the show notes of the episode. But in the Believer Magazine interview, Varda says, quote, But in a way, we all have a Mona. We all have inside ourselves a woman who walks alone on the road. In all women, there is something in revolt that is not expressed. I'm interested in people who are not exactly the middle way or who are trying something else because they cannot prevent themselves from being different or they wish to be different or they are different because society pushed them away, unquote. And I think that quote really sums up some of the people in The Gleaners and I, that yes, they're gleaning out of necessity for the most part, but there's also something revolting in them. They are in revolt from society, from a wasteful, over-consuming, materialistic society that throws everything away, that sees everything as disposable, that doesn't care about 
the the life that a used object could have and the power that it could have or the potential that it could have for art or meaning and I'll go deeper into the art aspect of this film the way people take these objects that are thrown away and create sculpture and all kinds of things out of them these are people who fundamentally cannot fit into society who are different who are deviant They can't live the way that other people live, or they don't want to. One of those men, one of those people is Claude, and she meets him. At the time, he's living in a trailer. He was a truck driver for a while, but he said that the hours were impossible. He said he was working like over 20 hours sometimes in a day. One day, his life just fell apart. He was breathalyzed, and he was obviously, I guess, struggling with alcoholism and addiction. He ended up losing his job. As a result of that, his wife left him, and she took their three kids. Um, And that was the beginning of the end for him. And over the course of the film, he really struggles. And in The Gleaners and I, two years later, he he's sort of getting things together but he still doesn't have any kind of relationship with his children and he hasn't seen them. And I think Claude is a reminder to us that our lives can be very precarious, that one thing can happen. You know, the thing is that you can look at these these gleaners, you can look at these people who are living on the margins in many ways, who are struggling. You can judge them. You can think, oh, I would never get food out of a dumpster and eat it. I would never do that. But I can speak from personal experience that there are things that can happen in your life. Your life can literally change in an instant. I mean, that's what happened to me when my father died. You know, it really plunged my mom and I into into financial difficulty. Throughout the years, I've had times where I didn't have a lot of food, where I had food insecurity. And it was painful where I had to go to charities to get food and was given terrible food. I actually talk about this more on my episode about Ken Loach's I, Daniel Blake. If you've seen that film and you're interested in my discussion about it, I urge you to listen because I talk about things that I went through, like with my dad getting sick and us being uh, on food stamps and and, uh, government assistance and the the indignities of it and the the pain of it and how we were treated and things like that. We look down on people like this because we think that we're invulnerable. We think that we would never get food out of a trash can, that we would never be so low. We would never stoop over to glean stuff out of the fields. But these are people who it's necessary for a lot of them to do it. And your life can change in an instant. All it takes is one injury. That's what happened to my dad. He got hurt on the job and it wrecked his health and he was never the same afterwards and he was not able to work. A lot of bad things happened to us as a result and he ended up dying. He was a healthy, robust person for most of his life and one thing at work ended everything for him. It was devastating. And so I have a lot of sympathy for somebody like Claude, even though he's struggling with alcoholism and and some people might judge him or, or tell him, oh, get a job, do this, do that. But those are people speaking from a place of privilege, of class privilege, of what, of having a life where you don't have to do things like that. Well, some of us do. Some of our lives have been ruined and devastated. And uh, it can be very difficult to recover if you ever do. 
And I found myself wondering about these people all these years later. Because she got back with them two years after the film came out. But my lord, it's been 18 years now since the film came out. I wonder about the people in it. Like, where are they now? What happened to them? Nothing came up in my research. But you care about these people. You really do. And I had a lot of sympathy for Claude. You know, Claude's story was difficult to see especially in the the documentary two years later he's still struggling with his alcoholism and he's around people who are also addicted and and who are alcoholics as well and you see the damage of their lives and and the pain of it i'll talk a bit more about that when i get into the gleaners and i two years later so she talks to claude and then she also talks to a guy named francois And he's the one that wears the rubber boots. And he's a city person, I think. Whereas Claude was more in the country. He was living in a trailer in the country. So Francois says that he lives 100% on things from the trash. Now he has a job. He's not someone who's homeless or necessarily poor. But for him, gleaning is more about ethics. He's upset about the waste in society, especially the food waste. And he ties the idea of overconsumption to the oil industry and uh, and things like that. So he has an environmental consciousness and ethos. And I think that these gleaners are fascinating in the film because even before the environmental movement became so big, I think this film sort of comes at a time before the maybe the climate stuff became so mainstream and the environmentalism became so main, mainstream. It's also interesting how in the film she shows this protest that was happening in France against the far right and lots of people came out to protest the rise of the far right in the country and it's interesting how we're still dealing with that now like with the Trump presidency here in the United States. So again the film is almost foreshadowing or or it's oddly in conversation or or resonates with things that we're dealing with now with the rise of the far right with concerns over climate change and the environment overconsumption wastefulness it's fascinating how uh politically rich this film is without obviously varda knowing what was going to come or what was going to happen but i think the gleaners in this film really provide an alternative perspective a unique perspective about society that we need to hear you know they're talking about waste they're talking about the damage that we're doing to the earth and they care about it and they're in the minority unfortunately and that they care about it and then finally she talks to alan and he's one of the people that uh she sees frequently i think in paris where there's these markets i guess on the weekend or something like that and alan goes through the crates and all the food and all the stuff that's left after those markets he has like this large bag with him and as he's picking stuff he's eating it like he eats apples and the different food that he uh that he finds and he also i think has a job but he's he's doing it to save money and to feed himself he's a vegetarian and he finds everything that he needs to in those markets He's interesting because unlike the other people she's talked to, he actually has a master's degree. He used to be a teaching assistant and he studied biology. He actually lives in a shelter where he teaches immigrants how to read and write. So Alan's a really interesting figure and a a selfless person in a lot of ways in that 
He wants to help immigrants who have come to France. He wants to teach them to read and write. And Varda shows a class in the shelter and in the place where he lives of him giving classes and teaching them that. And it's a very giving and generous thing. I, I got the sense that out of all the people that Varda spoke to with the documentary that Alan was the one that really impressed her the most. Here is this person giving back to others. And his story was really, was really uh, beautiful, I thought. And so in a way, even though Varda at the beginning of the film talks about how gleaning is done sort of solid in a solitary way, she mentions how it used to be done in groups and then now it's more like individuals. I would argue that the people doing this gleaning are more community-minded and that even though they are, they are gleaning on their own at times, gleaning itself is still a communal activity. Because when she shows these people at the orchards or on the beach, picking up the mussels or the oysters, or when she shows them at the market, it's always a group of people who are doing it at the same time. Or the people who are picking up the potatoes off the ground or getting the apples out of the orchard. It's always like a huge group of people. They may not be friends. They may not know each other, but they're all there in this one place together, engaging in this activity. You know, I think of the people who were at the abandoned vineyard. Remember, there was that vineyard that was abandoned and there was this group of people and they were singing. So sometimes we do see groups. Sometimes we see them solitary, as in the case of Francois and Alan. But what fascinated me, though, was that a lot of the people that gleaned went on and shared the things that they gleaned. Claude had a girlfriend that he lived with. He had some people that he knew, and I'm sure he shared that stuff with her. There is briefly a person that she talks to called Solomon, and he does gleaning, and he lives in this apartment with other other men. Um, they just all live together, and they talk about how they find all kinds of great stuff, and they end up sharing that food with their neighbors. They, they find lots of food in these dumpsters, and they go back and they cook it, but then they talk about how they always have more than they need. Well, instead of hoarding that or keeping it for themselves, they give it to other people. And also Alan, he gives of his time. He thinks about the other people that are around him. So these people who are gleaners, to me, and they don't like the wastefulness too. So they're thinking in a, in a communal-minded way. Like they're in a society that's very me, me, me you know, individual, individualistic. I mean, I don't know how individualistic France is. I'm speaking more from a Western or United States perspective. We are like extremely individualist here in the U.S. It's every person for themselves and um, not thinking about the greater good. Whereas I feel like the people in the cleaners and I are thinking of the greater good. They're thinking about living in a way that is responsible and ethical, even though they themselves are poor or struggling. When they have more than they need, they don't just throw it away. They go and give it to their neighbors. So that's also something really special about the people in this film is she shows people who are struggling on the margins, but she also shows the solidarity that is created when you live on the margins with other people and how you look out for each other and you care about each other. 
and you help each other. Because that's what I saw a lot of in the film. I saw people struggling. I saw people living in trailers or living in a shelter. But even though their lives were hard, they seemed to be trying to help each other and support each other when they could. And there are some really beautiful stories of that. So this act of gleaning, even though it can be done in a solitary way, it's also communal. And it does entail people coming together. And there's a connection between people as they glean. Whereas so much of our lives now are mediated through phones and technology, there's much more of a distance between people now. Whereas these are people physically engaging in this. Their hands are touching the potatoes. And think about how much more connected to the earth they are and to the food that they're eating. You know, nowadays we we go to supermarkets. We, here in the United States, we don't go to open markets. We don't pick out produce. It was fascinating. I watched this really great special uh, called Monty Don's uh, French Gardens. And Monty Don, if you don't know who he is, I love him. He's this sort of television personality in Britain, but he hosts a lot of shows about gardening. He has like Gardener's World and, and different shows like that. He, he knows all about gardening. He has another special about Italian gardens, but I haven't gotten to it yet. I'm, I'm watching the series he did on French gardens. And those of you who may have listened to some other episodes, I have an episode about Agnieszka Holland's The Secret Garden, a film I love from my childhood. And in that episode, I talked about my love for gardens. I don't have one. I've never had a garden, but I just love anything to do with them. I love shows about gardens. I love that film. And so this show by Monty Don, he didn't just talk about the gardens of France. He really used the gardens as a way to talk about French society and French culture. And a really fascinating part of it was the markets that a lot of French people go to where they buy produce. And it seems to me like people in France, or a lot of them when it comes to eating, they like to to touch their food and they love vegetables and fruits and they love, uh, you know, food that has come out of the earth and they seem really connected to the earth, some of them. He talks about the peasants in France and different places where they grow their own food, like uh, monasteries and stuff like that. And so that's another thing that occurred to me while I was watching this is that these are people deeply connected to the earth. I, I just don't think it's any surprise that the earth is being degraded and destroyed at a time when we are the most alienated from it. You know, where we don't we don't pick our own food here in the U.S. We don't go to markets and pick out tomatoes and brought I mean there are farmers markets but for somebody like me who's working class that's not really affordable I don't go to Whole Foods to get my groceries you know I eat really processed food you know I don't eat fruits and vegetables because it's too expensive for me a lot of people live in food deserts where they don't even have fruits and vegetables so food is a complicated issue here in the United States and it's very connected to class and money and what you can afford And um, it's why our diet is so terrible, right? But these people who are doing this gleaning, they are touching the food that comes out of the earth, the figs, the the apples, the potatoes. I mean, it's a bit different with the markets maybe or getting stuff out of a dumpster. I think that's also what makes them environmentalists or makes them aware of that wastefulness is that they're a bit more connected to the earth and what they're doing. 
I mean, Alan takes pleasure in those fruits and vegetables that he finds at that market. He loves them because he's a vegetarian. (laughs) So gleaning is like this communal activity. And it's also this tactile, physical activity too, where you're touching things, you're touching food and actually touching the trees and the earth where, where it's grown. And that's a powerful thing, I think. Finally, when it comes to the gleaners and I, I want to end my discussion of the film before I get into the Gleaners and I two years later that was made. I want to talk about gleaning and the connection to art because this is a huge theme in the film. From the beginning, we are shown a definition of gleaning and we're shown the the Mie painting of, uh, of the Gleaners. Varda is gleaning with her camera, obviously, and she's gleaning all kinds of different things and putting them together and assembling uh, these things into the film, these found objects in a way. She brings in paintings, she brings in sculptures, other forms of visual art. Even rap music is in the film. She even incorporates rap music. There's a rap song that talks about uh, wastefulness. And if I'm correct, at one point, Varda herself is rapping. She has created a rap. I was, I couldn't believe it. I was like, is is Varda rapping? I couldn't believe that I didn't um, remember that. I had totally forgotten about it, but I think she raps at one point in the film. So we begin with the Mie painting of the Gleaners, and she shows that, and she's making a point, making a, a connection between the women in that painting who are stooping over and the way people stoop over now as they're gleaning at the markets or in the fields. And I did a, I found out a little bit about this painting, And The Gleaners is a painting, it's from 1857 actually, and there's this book um, by Rebecca DeRue, and it's called Agnes Varda Between Film, Photography, and Art. In this book, Rebecca DeRue talks about that painting, and it was actually a radical painting when it came out. And so I just wanted to share what I learned because I thought it was really interesting. Uh, Daru writes, quote, Mie represented gleaning, a practice in rural life of the period, often carried out by impoverished peasants who would walk the fields and pick up stray grains after the crops had been harvested. Mie used a painterly style of realism, a movement to depict present-day subjects not traditionally deemed worthy of Beaux-Arts painting. Rather than rendering the details of poverty, Mie aestheticized the impact, using muted colors, round rhythmic poses, and soft contours to render the figures more poetic. When his painting was shown at the Paris Salon of 1857, an officially sanctioned exhibition, however, it shocked many viewers. Some critics were sympathetic to the impoverished figures, while others viewed them as ugly and potentially threatening, following the uprisings in the revolution of 1848, unquote. Now this was fascinating to me that what Mie was doing in this painting was taking people that were sort of invisible, who were not normally seen in painting or in art, and he was putting them front and center, and that this was radical at the time. And I think in a similar way, Varda in this film It's taking people that you don't normally see, you know, people who live in rural areas, who who glean, who are poor, who are working class, who don't have a lot of food, right? Uh, And some people who have chosen to live that way. And she's centering them in her documentary. She's She's taking these people who are on the margins, who are invisible, who are forgotten, and she's putting them in the in the middle, 
and right in front of her camera, letting them have a voice, letting them talk about their lives and their ideas and what they believe in. And I, I wonder if that's also why the documentary resonated so deeply with people, that they saw themselves in these people. They saw themselves in Claude and Francois and Alan and Solomon and all the different people in this documentary. Or they, they wanted to see more people like that in a film. Maybe, maybe it's not exactly like them, but it's, it's people that they wish they saw more in cinema. And also it's very interesting to me that these gleaners in this painting represented a, a political threat to the people who were in power. They saw them threatening because the working class and the poor are threatening if they rise up, if they refuse to accept the way things are. And a lot of the gleaners in this film, especially Francois, are deeply critical of society, are deeply critical of the power structure and the way things are, the way that society is functioning. You know, and I think if more people were like Francois and were critical, I think that is threatening. You know, it's always threatening when the working class rises up. And we're seeing that here in the United States of more people saying, this is not the way we should have to live. You know, you see the rise of with socialism and um, a stronger leftist movement that's taking hold, uh, thankfully, and that gives me a little bit of hope, personally, that uh, we don't have to live this way. Life doesn't have to be like this. And I think Varda isn't saying that explicitly in the film, but she's questioning the way things are. She is wondering why a society that is so rich and wealthy and developed has people who are stooping over and and doing this. You know, Varda in one interview, I can't remember which it was, but she said it was painful for her at times to see people doing this, that she saw elderly people, old women stooping over at these markets, picking up this food, and that it made her sad to see that. And it was hard at times to see the suffering because not everybody is Francois. Not everybody's doing it out of ethics. Not everybody's doing it out of principle. If they don't go and glean, they don't eat because they're poor and they can't feed themselves. They're not getting any kind of help or assistance. And there's actually a really great book that recently came out and it talks about the working class in France and it rails against the establishment and those in power who subjugate the poor, who won't help uh, people who are disabled. And it's called Who Killed My Father by Edward Louis. And Louis is a fantastic writer. I was just blown away by this book. And he talks about his father. His father um, got hurt on the job. He's disabled and deals with back issues, all kinds of things. And he talks about the way that the French government has treated him and the inhumane treatment of him. So it's a deeply political book, but also a deeply personal book. And it speaks to a lot of the issues that the working class are dealing with. And some of them are trying to resist and change. It's a fantastic book. Those are the kinds of people that Varda is centering in this film. People who are struggling. And of course, another big painting in this film is Hedowin's The Gleaners Fleeing Before the Storm. It's never even been like seen or it's been seen, but it's like in storage and she has them bring it out at the museum. She's able to have them bring it out. It's this 
stunning painting. It's huge. And that's the way the film ends, is us seeing that painting and seeing these gleaners who are fleeing from the storm that's about to come up. So painting is the primary art that Varda is engaging with. But throughout the film, she talks to to many people who are artists or who see the artistic possibility in junk, in trash, in things that are thrown away. You know, there's the painter that makes things that he finds, like out of his cigarette pack papers. And uh, she shows him going out at night and picking up the discarded things that people have left on the sidewalk. She talks to an old man who makes totem poles out of old junk. She talks to another man who makes art from old items. He says that most people see, quote, a cluster of junk, unquote, but he sees a cluster of possibilities. And he thinks that art is about helping to tidy up our inner and outer worlds. And then she looks at an exhibition about trash. It's at a museum and kids go in and they learn about how to sort trash, I guess for recycling. They play with things. In a workshop that's held, uh, the kids take the trash and the junk and they turn it into art. They make flowers out of yogurt containers, mobiles out of plastic bottles. So throughout the film, I think Varda is challenging us to look at trash, to look at leftovers, to look at waste and the things that are thrown away and to think about what else could be done with it and the art that could be created. And she's really interested in people who have that kind of vision and that kind of creativity and imagination who can see things on the side of the road or on the sidewalk or things that are put in dumpsters and who can take them, put them together and create beautiful art out of them. I think that's an amazing thing myself. Now I want to talk about the afterlife of the Gleaners and I, because to me, it's incredibly fascinating. I I want to talk about the afterlife of this film, not just for other people, but for myself. And it was so interesting that after I saw this film, uh, we had potatoes. Like one night we were having potatoes and I was cutting them up and I couldn't help but think of this film. You know, it's just so interesting the way you can think about a film uh, while you're doing certain activities. I mean, that's the thing about Varda is she took that that heart-shaped potato and she kind of made it so that you'll never see a potato in the same way. To me, that's what the whole film's doing is that it's asking us to not look at things the same way that we've always looked at them. You know, to see the possibilities in junk and uh, to see a heart in a potato and to see that ordinary people can be extraordinary and to see that there's something wrong with our society. There's something deeply wrong. And maybe everyday people walked by these gleaners out on the streets or after the markets and maybe they never thought twice about it. Oh, here's these people going through the trash. But Varda, if you watch Varda's film, you're going to stop and think about it you know, and you're going to see that differently. And as a result, you're going to see other people differently. You're going to see the world differently. And I think that's what some of the greatest art can do is to make us look at things differently, to change our vision, right? To change the way we look, to challenge us to look deeper or to think deeper. And so I can never look at potatoes the same way. I didn't have a heart-shaped potato, but I just found myself thinking about Varda and thinking about the film as I held the potatoes in my hand. I mean, it was, it was really powerful, I think. 
So the Gleaners and I, two years later, came out in 2002. I believe that it's a supplement on some of the DVDs that are out there. So the Gleaners and I DVD will also include this on some of them. And this is so much more than just a follow-up documentary about the Gleaners and I. What I realized in the process of watching it is that it's really a documentary about the impact that a film can have on people. It's about the afterlife of a film and the way that it can just become part of, part of your life in some way. And she talks in the film about how uh, the Gleaners and I won lots of awards But she also received many letters as a result. She said it's the most letters that she's received for any of her films. I love the way that she's revisiting people in The Gleaners and I. But then she's also creating new connections with the people who loved the film. So she gets these letters and then she decides to reach out to some of the people that wrote them to her and she meets them and she engages with them. And that is just, it it creates such a richness in this documentary because it could have just been a straightforward thing of, oh, well, let's just revisit the people who were in it. Let's get an update. Let's see how their lives are going. That would have been great on its own. But because she engages with the people that sent her things and, and wrote letters to her, it's like even more fascinating. So there's this couple named Delphine and Philip and they sent her a letter and she goes to see them. Like a lot of people in the Gleaners and I, they like to salvage things and create art from it. So they were obviously deeply moved by the film. Varda has this really profound exchange with Delphine. Varda asks her, what effect does a film have? What reaches the film goer? Delphine replies, I think that seeing this film was like a rebirth. We had come for the death of a friend. Then this film just completely put us back in touch with ourselves, with life. Varda says, yet it talks a lot about leftovers, things that are abandoned. And Delphine replies, yes, but it's made by someone who's alive. The filmmaker is very much alive. And this is like one of my favorite exchanges of a film, I think, ever. (laughs) I just love it. I think it so, so uh, beautifully captures the power of film in our lives. When she says that, I guess they had been visiting some someone like a friend who was dying. At the time that they saw the film, they were going through grief and bereavement and seeing the Gleaners and I reconnected them with life. Like that, I just think that's so beautiful because that's my own relationship with cinema is that I watch films to connect to life, really. I watch films because they make life worth living at this point. It didn't used to always be that way, but that's what film has become to me, along with books, along with my mother, along with other passions that I have in life. Cinema is the thing that connects me with life, that keeps me engaged with life. Even when I'm down, even when I'm depressed, even when I'm lonely and struggling, it's even more important to me at those times. So that film was even more important because of the context, because it came into the life of Delphine and Philip when they needed it most. And I just love her observation that the filmmaker is alive 
And that's what makes it powerful. And that is the sense that you get of Varda in the film is that she is so alive. She's alive to the moment. She's alive to the different connections that she finds. She's engaged with the people that she's talking to for the film. Her life and her energy and her vitality is all over that film. Her incandescence just suffuses it in every way. And I think that's also what Delphine and Philip connected to, what I connected to, what so many people connected to. She revisits Alan, and remember he was the one that went through the markets, he was teaching immigrants to read and write. He's the one that said that he didn't like Varda's self-portrait in the film, he didn't like how much she was in the film. He just didn't think it was necessary. But it's interesting because he's he's invited to screenings of the film. A lot of the people in the film sort of became mini celebrities in France where people would recognize them. People recognized Alan on the streets and he would go to theaters and he would talk about the film and uh, he got paid a little bit to do that. So he became like a little bit of a celebrity. And they also show a clip of Francois going on a television show with Varda. And I read that after the film came out, Varda did go on TV. She did also do public discussions and and things like that to talk about the film, to talk about the issues that were in the film. So I think the documentary also becomes this really great vehicle to talk about the wastefulness in society, right? And people who live on the margins and poverty and all kinds of things like that. It becomes a conversation starter in a lot of ways. Alan ends up running a marathon in this uh, two years later documentary. And he does really he does really well at it. <laughs> uh, Claude... Claude has his ups and downs, like even with this update, like for a while he was living with a friend who was helping him. And then I think he ended up in a shelter. He's still struggling with his alcoholism. Varda says that he smells like wine at times. In general, Claude seems like someone who's had a really rough life. I think the sections with Claude are the heaviest ones in both The Gleaners and I and The Gleaners and I two years later. You know, even though this film is looking at poverty and people who are barely getting by, strangely enough, it has a lightness about it. I think because of Varda, because of her presence in it, she's able to expose the inequality in society to show how, you know, such a a wealthy society also has poverty. But she does it without being tr- without being preachy or stripping people of their complexity or their humanity. She doesn't make them into a cause, right? She just lets them be. But there's something about these sections about Claude that, for me, were heartbreaking. Because of his alcoholism, he had lost his job and his wife left him. He still had no contact with his children, even in the update two years later. You don't know if there's any resources available to him or any kind of help for him. So you see the burden of living on the margins. His teeth look bad as well. He has teeth missing. So you see the burden and the pain of that way of life. And you saw that with Mona in Vagabond. Mona does suffer in that film. There's a brokenness about Claude and also about the people that he is around. His ex-girlfriend and... Some of the people that he was living with and associating with, there was a deep sense of brokenness and um, it it was hard to watch it at times. I think it should be hard 
to watch people suffering and living in a society that offers them little help. At the end of this documentary, there seems to be a little bit of hope for Claude. He ends up in a shelter and he seems stable. He seems happy to be there. He says it's warm. But there's there's something about him that really broke my heart, honestly. Because Claude has lost so much. And she revisits Francois, who had been storing things at his apartment building and his neighbors didn't like it. And the police ended up committing him to a mental hospital. Francois has been has been through a lot. And we learned that in this update. For that to happen is just pretty terrible, right? So we also see how there is a great cost in not being normal, in not being like everybody else in society. There is a cost to it. For somebody like Francois, you know, it comes through being put in a mental hospital for a little while. Of course, he gets out and he's okay, but it's just an example of how uh, society doesn't really tolerate people like this, people who are different, who can't fit in, who are in revolt against society. And in this film, Varda receives the most amazing gifts from people. It's fascinating to see the cord that the Gleaners and I struck for so many people. I mean, they send her books with drawings in them, a handmade journal. Somebody sent her chocolate that was in the shape of her initials. I mean, it's just, I was like, oh my gosh. She had a serious fandom going on, even in the early 2000s, right? She got all kinds of wonderful gifts from her fans. And it really occurs to me that this film is about physical things. And I think that matters. We've become an increasingly digital world where everything is intangible and on a screen. Even photos. Even photos are very intangible these days. Uh, But as I said earlier, the people who are going out to glean, they are touching the food. They're touching the earth. It's not delivered to their door. It's not coming to their doorstep. They're touching the potatoes, the junk, the objects that they create out of art. You know, they're going through the dumpster. They're touching this stuff, and hands are very prominent in the film. I talked about that earlier. Varda films her hands several times, and I think that's partly why I love thrift shops. I love them so much. Uh, You find books and CDs and albums and things from the past. It's very analog, right? It's a return to another time, and I think that the gifts that she receives are are like that. They're handmade. They're tactile. They're letters written out with handwriting rather than emails. These are things that people created with their own hands. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It's something that I personally miss. People barely even send physical mail anymore. It's almost like a lost art in a lot of ways, the way letterpress is in that documentary that I mentioned. And Varda talks to this woman named Masha, who has this really beautiful monologue kind of where she's talking about she thinks that objects she likes used objects she likes stuff that she finds on the street and things like that because she thinks that these objects contain like the essence of the people who once owned them and she feels like gleaning and finding these objects are an indirect way of meeting these people that it's a connection to them and that's something that I feel about used books actually that there's this life inside of them. You know, you see passages that someone highlighted or you see the marginalia and what they wrote and and 
I, I think it's fascinating. Sometimes their names are in it. Sometimes there's a interesting bookmark <laughs> that's not quite a bookmark, but just a piece of paper with something they wrote down. So there's this whole life in these objects. And so thinking about the, the gifts that Varda received, it's like there's a life in the objects that people sent to her. And that having those objects from those people, the journals, the drawings, all kinds of little trinkets and, and things that people sent her, it's like this connection to them, to all these people that she'll never know. You know, they know her and they love her films, but she'll never be able to fully know them. But that's why I love that she engaged with her fans because she took it beyond just the letters or the drawings and she actually sought those people out to meet them face to face because that's something that Agnes Varda would do because she's so humane in that way and empathetic and warm and, and loves people and takes joy in being around people and, and hearing their stories. So I think it's completely in keeping with who she was that it wouldn't be enough just to receive these letters. She's got to meet some of these people and find out more about them and put them in her film. I think in the process, she's really creating a portrait of how a film affects people and how they connect to it. They see something of themselves and their lives in the people on the screen. Maybe they glean too, or salvage, or go to thrift shops, or maybe they understand what Varda feels as she ages, or they're moved by Alan's teaching. There's actually a woman in this documentary that, that meets Alan and says that, that his story made her want to be a better person. You don't know the effect that that something like this can have. She could have just easily revisited the people in the Gleaners and I and kept it at that and just met Claude and Alan and Francois. And she does that, obviously. But I think by meeting the people who sent the letters to her, she expands her inquiry and focuses substantially on various viewers' relationship with the film and why it has meaning for them. And so I think that's what makes The Gleaners and I, two years later, so extraordinary and worth checking out. And also, I think, deepens our relationship to the original film, The Gleaners and I, that it's a perfect companion and that I think watching the two of them together is such an enriching experience. And I loved every minute of it. I loved revisiting this film. I loved talking about it and sharing what I felt about it with you. I have gone on long enough at this point. I hope that you liked this episode and thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.